So again, let yourself sit in a way that's comfortable and at rest. Meditation centers, temples, ashrams are in one fundamental way places of peace, that is, reminders of the kind of peace or harmony that is possible for us in our lives. And within them, if they are actively pursuing the spiritual practices, one finds a certain spaciousness, a pleasure of the spaciousness of such places. And it's that spaciousness that I'd like to speak of this evening. Two weeks ago, you may remember, those who were here, I told the story of the ancient Indian story of the visit of Nachiketa to uh, Lord Yama, the Lord of Death, asking for three boons or three blessings. And in that same vein, it is said that a man came to visit the Buddha at one time when the Buddha was resting with his monks in the forest, bowed, paid his respects, and said, I understand you are Buddha. And the Buddha replied, yes, what can I do for you? And he said, I have a question for you. I would like to know how it is that a person can live or be such that they will not be seen by the king of death. This is a little bit like Nachiketa's third question to Lord Yama. And after a due silence, the Buddha replied. He said, for one who abides in selflessness, who does not claim as I or me or self or mine anything in this world, such a one will not be seen by the king of death. In another early text of the Buddhas, a sutra on loving-kindness, on the perfection of the great heart of loving-kindness, where the Buddha talks about how wondrous it is to develop loving-kindness for all beings, all creatures. He said, thus I instruct you, my friends, monks and nuns, to follow in this way. And even if a man should come along and threaten you, or harm you, or cut off your hands and feet, your limbs, if you should harbor any ill will toward that person, any ill will, instead of loving kindness, you cannot rightly be said to be a true disciple of mine. Now, I read this when I was a young monk in monastery, and I looked at it and I said, forget it, no way. <laughs> I have ill will toward people for much less than that. <laughs> and I'm sure you've all noticed in yourself the same. And I began to reflect, what does this point to? What does this say? How could one possibly do that? Because if someone physically harms your body, how could you not respond with aversion and anger and ill will and fear? And as I reflected and my meditation deepened, I began to realize that the only way that one could respond in that fashion was through a shift of identity. As long as this is my body, is, this is taken as who I am, this personality and this body. There's no way that that response will not happen. But it's possible to shift. Consciousness is really flexible and uh, fabulous. It can create and expand and touch anything. And when our identity opens to something which is greater or more timeless, when we see the fleetingness uh, the impermanence of this body that we cling to and realize this is not who we are, then something else becomes possible. There's a story that the Jungian writer who writes so well, Robert Johnson, tells in this very fine book on same-sex love that just came out. Some friends wrote. He said he went to India. People warned him in his first trip, Robert, you've got to steal yourself before you get there or it will just sweep you off your feet. You're going to be stepping over dead corpses in the street. There'll be lepers after you, people with amputated legs poke, poking into your ribs. You'll watch people starving before your eyes. 
And all of that turned out to be true, he said, and yet I survived. I had some bad moments, but somehow my sense of reality expanded to take in this dimension of life. But what no one prepared me for was the immense deep happiness of so many people in India, people who had no reason to be happy. Some of them are starving to death on the edge of disaster, living for all intents on the streets, outdoors, with no idea where their food will be coming from. But they're happy people with nothing to be happy about. I found out that you're not ever happy about anything. You're just happy. Happy and happening are the same word in the dictionary. So if you want to make friends with an Indian, he goes on talking about being there, you don't talk to them or look at them directly, you just kind of edge up next to them. Usually it has to be someone of the same sex. And wait. And if he consents to something with you, he won't go anywhere. He'll just stand there or sit there. And after what seems like a terribly long period of time, then somebody says something or somebody does something and then you two are probably friends for as long as you wish or intend likely for life. And this is not taken lightly. For example, one day I was riding my bicycle, minding my own business, though nothing is ever entirely one's own business in India, <laughs> when a young fellow came along parallel to me. In good Anglo-Saxon style, I moved over slightly and dutifully looking straight ahead. The young fellow remained parallel to me, so I moved over a little farther, but he was still there. He moved closer. Presently, he reached out, took my hand, and we proceeded for several blocks riding together hand in hand. <laughs> then he turned off at the next street, and I never saw him again, at least not for a while. But the connection was engaged, and a bond was made that is the genius of India. And if I ever saw him again, he would have been my true friend. One further story. I didn't know my way around that wonderful world of India, but I ended up making friends amazingly quickly anyway. Then I got sick, nothing permanent, mind you, but very sick. I was in an Indian hospital, which is another word for nightmare. <laughs> they explained it to me. It was supposed to be truly modern, westernized. They had one thermometer, which all of us patients had in succession, one after another. I objected, and they said, it's all right, because we rinse it off each time under the tap. Somehow, we all survived. The point of this story was that my first Indian friend, who'd taken me on as a blood brother, for what reason I'll never know, it's futile to ask, came and slept under my bed at night. He said, I'm not going to leave you there alone, so he or someone assigned by him slept under my hospital bed every night I was there, which is common in India. Now, if I go to the hospital in America, I can't get anybody to sleep <laughs> under my bed. It's not possible. One day, when my fever was 104, and I was just slightly out of my head, Amba Shankar, which was his name, stood at the foot of my bed and told me a story of his friend Baba. Baba had another friend, and this friend was ill. It looked as if Baba's friend might die. So Baba came to his friend and said, I wish to die for you, and you have only to say the word, and I will go and die that you may live. This is my wish, this is my friendship, this is how it is. The friend agreed, so Baba went away and died, and the friend lived. Being told this story, which is something like out of the Arabian Nights, snapped me into focus, because Amba Shankar then said, You say the word and I will go die, and then you will be all right. I was utterly speechless. I don't understand things like this. My heart understood and resonates, but none of my Anglo-Saxon verbal Western mind could cope with it. So I managed to say, Amba, I do not think I'm that ill. Don't do anything now, please. I think we will both pull through. <laughs> and as it happens, we did. But the man had offered me an astonishing gift, his own life. In Zorba the Greek, Zorba's walking along and he runs into a 90-year-old man, 95-year-old, who's digging in the earth and planting this almond tree that won't bear fruit for 20 or 30 years. And he says, old man, how can you plant that tree? You, you know, you're 95 years old, you won't see it bear fruit. And the old man looked to him and said, I act, he said, and I live as if my life has no end.
And Zorba then turned to his friend, he said, he said, and I said, boss, I act as if every day was my last. Which is the right way? I have an acquaintance who was telling me about an old, old man he knows who's so sensitive to impermanence, he won't buy green bananas. <laughs> Not sure, you know. <laughs> as if holding on makes a difference. Now, in the great story or myth of the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, he sat under the Bodhi tree and stilled himself and opened his consciousness and his mind so broadly and so deeply with such clarity in the first two watches of the night he looked at the very nature of life and as his mind became luminous and clear and all time appeared which it does when you become absolutely still the past and the present and the future are always just here he looked into the nature of time and he saw he said i saw my past lives one two five ten a hundred a thousand now, you don't have to believe in past lives to meditate. You can just do it in this life. It's fine. There's no need to believe in all of that stuff. It's true, but you don't have to believe it, right? <laughs> but anyway, so he looked. And there he said, I saw I was born in such and such a place and made certain karma and then was reborn in this other life again and again and again, 10,000 times. And then as his meditation deepened, he turned his consciousness to see the life of many beings and saw beings in all forms and sorts being born from one life or one existence to another in the cycles of great, great hundreds of thousands of kalpas of time, each being the father or mother or sister or brother to another over and over again. The world cycles, a hundred thousand mahakalpas. Saw those who had short lives and long lives, saw the beings that lived simply and those who lived complexly. Houston Smith, who was a wonderful teacher and friend, when he met with the Dalai Lama in exile in India in the early years, he was still a professor at MIT, so the Dalai Lama, interested in science, said, tell me, Houston, what is uh, the latest scientific view on the beginnings of the universe? And so Houston, coming from MIT, explained the whole thing of the Big Bang. Dalai Lama was very interested. And then Houston said, do you have anything in Buddhism that is the equivalent of the Big Bang? The Dalai Lama reflected for a bit and he said, I think more accurately in the Buddhist tradition we would call it the bang, bang, bang theory of the universe. <laughs> that as the Buddha looked, he saw whole universes appear for vast eons of time and then disappear. And there were earths and planets of all kinds and beings of every form and then they would vanish and again, out of nothing would come new universes. Now, maybe you can't see that far, but you can see the change of seasons and notice the earth go around the sun because that's what the change of seasons comes from. And you can see the change of civilizations. There's 28 or 30 or more in our history books, empires, the Sumerian Empire, the Babylonians, you remember cuneiform writing and all of that stuff? The Egyptians, the Chinese, the Persians, the Greeks, the Hittites, the Romans, the Ottoman Empire, the British Empire, remember that one? It was big, right, until recently. Or the Portuguese Empire, the Dutch, or even the Russian Empire. Empire's a dime a dozen. Remember Ozymandias, yes. So that's the perspective that the Buddha had, the night of enlightenment, looking at the arising and passing of vast stretches of time and beings doing the dance of our life. Now these days, especially in California, it's easy for spiritual practice to, be, to become confused with self-improvement. You know what I mean? It can either be what Alan Watts described as a grim duty, you know, to make yourself better. You're the survivor or the perpetrator or the victim or the, or the something. And we are survivors or we are addicts or we're all these things. But one can make that so much an identity that you lose a sense of something greater. Or you come 
with some limited sense of yourself, the problems of your body, the tasks you have to do, the stories you tell of your life, your fears, your hopes. And if you practice right, you'll become less neurotic or less greedy or more relaxed, or your personality will become more pleasant, or you'll be better at tennis or lovemaking or something, or you'll just be a great spiritual human being, you know. And of course it can help. Meditation or various things can do that. But in the ground of it, to sit or to enter a spiritual practice, to awaken, is not about self-improvement, but about opening to what is our true nature, to rest in that space of truth as the Buddha did in the midst of all of life under the Bodhi tree. That's not improvement, but rather it's letting go. Zhuang Su, old Taoist sage, he said, A drunken man who falls out of a cart, though he may suffer, does not die. His bones are the same as other people's, but he meets his accident in a different way. His spirit is in a condition of security. He's not conscious of riding in the cart, neither is he conscious of falling out of it. Ideas of life, death, fear, and the like cannot penetrate his heart, his breast. And so he does not suffer from contact with so-called objective existence. If such security is to be gotten from wine, how much more can it be gotten from the divine? <laughs> it's not about improvement, but letting go. And as we learn to let go, there comes a sense of grace of the seasons like Ryokan, the wonderful Zen poet, who said, for 70 years I've been looking at the actions of men and women. I give up. <laughs> he said, if you want to know the truth, I just sit in my hut, stretch my feet out by the fire and answer. Enough already. <laughs> to rest. The waves of the mind, you sat for a little bit here. Thoughts come and go, stories tell themselves. Sometimes it's called witness consciousness, to witness or to watch what's there. I don't like that language very much, so I haven't used it for many years. And the reason I don't like the word watch or witness is because it can so easily become a part of distancing ourselves from life, removing. It plays into that place where spiritual life seems, well, I'll get out of this life into something better, which isn't where freedom lies. That's just fear. Do you remember the story of the old grandfather who'd never ridden on, a t on an airplane? So his niece and nephew decided, okay, before he dies, he should have an airplane ride, and they hired a pilot at a small plane in one of the local airports. And he was kind of nervous, but he got in the plane anyway. Went up, and they took him all over his farm and the valleys around and so forth, then landed. They said, well, how did you like it? He said, well, it was Quite fantastic up there. And they said, well, were you scared? He said, nah, I was a little bit nervous, but I never really did let my weight down fully on the seat. <laughs> That's really what meditation is about, is finally just sitting down. <laughs> you know? From Rumi. In times of sudden danger, people call out, Oh my God, why would they keep doing this if it didn't help? <laughs> Only a fool keeps going back where nothing happens. The whole world lives in a safeguarding. Fish inside waves, birds held in the sky. Everything, all exist, are held in the divine. Nothing is ever alone for a single moment. So the place of peace is really that of trusting, opening a spacious heart in the midst of our life. To meditate, as I said, is like taking the one seat in the center of the theater of life, opening the doors and windows, making space within our consciousness, within our being for all things. And space is central to awakening. In the Taoist tradition, they talk about anything of value, of real value, is the space. I mean, the cup is worth nothing. 
Oh, it's plastic. That's good. Um, what's of value is the space within it that can be filled with liquid. It's not the cup, but it's the fact that within it, there's space for the water. Hmm. Space in the car is what makes it valuable. Space in the room. We tend to look at the people and the artwork and the room, but actually what allows us to be here is space. We float, we move through space. And it's not just space outside, but as one looks, it's space inside. When you look into your mind and into your heart, you discover it's the same as looking out to the stars. It's this vast inner space. Often in interviews and retreats and working with people and meditation practice, they're caught in fear or in some difficult story or tension in their body or great pain or fire, you know, all the stuff that comes, regret, grief, guilt, plans. And I'll say, just close your eyes for a moment and feel the fear or the grief or the guilt or the fire or the pain and give it space. In fact, let it get bigger. Let it get as big as it wants. Feel how big it wants to get and let the space around it be so vast that it can open. And as people do when they meditate and pay attention, it gets bigger and more intense and they grieve or they cry or they get angry or frightened or whatever. It gets bigger and bigger and pretty soon it turns into fog and dissipates. And in the very center of what seemed difficult is the same space that held it. It's true every time. Because what we are is space. We come out of space. Suzuki Roshi, remember almost his most famous line. To give your cow or sheep a large, spacious meadow is the best way to control him. Space to breathe. Ah. Space to feel your feelings. Space for grief. Space for joy. Just space to be alive. Ah, how wonderful to open space, to rest in space. The Buddha smiles, you know, the smile of the Buddha is a place of peace and spaciousness, a kind of oasis. The space, if you pay attention in meditation, it's always there, space. The space between breaths. The space between the words. The space between thoughts. The space in the body as you feel it, between the sensations. The space between stories, beliefs. Remember that line from Henry Miller where he wrote, it was incredible to discover that all I had written of the man, I could very well have written the opposite. We have one set of beliefs and a little while later, the space changes and there's another point of view. A philosopher is wedded to their opponent, said Lao Tzu. We fight, we get into it, and then all of a sudden it dissolves. I had a friend who teaches with me, was sitting with a close relative who died, and a lot of grief and difficulty at first, and finally a somewhat peaceful death. And she said, I'm going to miss this person so much. And she said, after she died, I found an amazing thing. I thought she would go away, and she did in a way, But there was not just less of her, there was also more of her. Instead of being localized, she was everywhere, this person that I love. She was in the sunset, she was in walks with me, she was in my own breath. Rumi. You are granite, I am an empty wine glass. You know what happens when we touch. You laugh like the sun coming up laughs as the morning star disappears into it. Love opens my chest and thought vanishes like clouds. Patience and rational consideration disappear. Love is the only reality. Don't keep complaining. Let the language of fear crack open and float away. Rumi says, let's come down from the ivory tower and never go back again. So spaciousness, 
in the Christian mystical tradition, in Latin, it's called the uh, apatheia. There's a certain divine apathy, which doesn't mean not caring, but divine equilibrium, the Tao, the seasons. Spring comes and the grass grows of itself. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower. Haven't you discovered that? It's already there in relaxation, letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself. As soon as you relax, space is here, open, inviting. Make use of it. It's yours already. Let the game happen on its own, arising and falling back without changing anything, like a rainbow vanishing and reappearing without end. Tibetan text. So this is the seed of equilibrium, being balanced in the dance of life, seeing that all beings have a cycle of birth and death. We can love them, we can care for them, but we can't change them very well. Haven't you noticed that? You can't even change yourself very much, much to speak of others. You can do what you can, but you can't let go for another person or get enlightened for them. Equilibrium, the balance of equanimity is taught with compassion. And in the crown chakra, in the seat of the head, there is this place to rest in which we sense this balance of the world, to rest in that which is timeless. My old teacher in Bombay, Nisargadat, studied with this old man who always talked about the absolute. Somebody said, well, you're an old man. Are you afraid of dying? And he said, are you kidding me? I refuse to accept the fact that I was born. That's your <laughs> illusion. This is only the food body. It has nothing to do with me. So if I wasn't born, where could I go? That was his answer. Spaciousness is coolness, the word for nirvana is spaciousness, coolness. Buddha Dasa, wonderful teacher of mine who died a couple of days ago, and I'll speak about him next week. He talked about marketplace nirvana. The fragrance, the sweet fragrance, like the fragrance of flowers, of any place where you feel coolness, of spaciousness, a void, of just letting go a little bit. And so in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it says, Sons and daughters of noble families, remember who you are. Know your own true and radiant nature. Remember the clear light that is your true nature that was never born and never dies. So that rest, that trust that we seek is just here. It's not far away. It is nearer than near. What I'd like to do is lead a little meditation that gives you a sense of spaciousness. So make sure that you're seated in a comfortable way. It will be for 15 or 20 minutes. The meditation comes from one of the great texts called the Sutra of Great Liberation that begins there being really no duality all separation is untrue. Until duality is transcended, enlightenment cannot be attained. The whole of samsara, all of the worlds, and nirvana, as an inseparable unity, are one's own mind. To know this, look within your own mind. When one seeks the nature of one's mind, it is found to be quite intelligible, although invisible. In its true nature, Mind is naked, immaculate, being of the voidness, timeless, transparent, containing all things, yet not limited by them. To know if this is so or not, look within your own mind. So just listen with your eyes closed gently, first to the words as I speak. Forget your breath and body for a few moments, the usual way we meditate, and just listen to sound. To know if this is so or not, look within your own mind. The soft sounds in the room, 
the distant sounds of children's voices on a summer evening. The sound of these bells. Let yourself rest at ease and just listen with an open and careful attention. And as you listen, let yourself sense or feel or imagine in any way you can that your mind is not limited to your head, but rather that your awareness or consciousness expands beyond your head to be as big as this room and bigger, open like the sky space without boundaries. There is no inside or outside. Rather, let the sounds arise in the great, vast space of your own consciousness. There is no solid body, just space, and sounds come and go like clouds or bubbles. Let go of boundaries. In its true state, mind is open like the sky, vast, without limits, containing all things, yet not limited by them. Simply listen and rest in the great open space of mind. Sounds come and go like clouds. The mind remains open without boundaries. Voices appear in one part and bells in another.
the mind in its true state is naked, clear, timeless. As you pay attention, the wakefulness of the space of awareness, let yourself also be aware of the breath. There's no inside or outside. The breath moves like a breeze. It breathes itself. And in the same space of mind, there's a coolness or pressure, like a breeze moving in the center. Sounds come and go, and the breath moves like a breeze, without boundaries. There's no inside or outside. There's no solid body if you feel quite carefully. There are points and areas of pressure, temperature, sensation that float in an open sea or space of attention. There's no head, no back, no arms or legs. Just pressure, warmth, tingling, sensations that float slowly. The breath moves like a breeze and sounds arise and dance in the space. Nothing inside and nothing outside. Let the mind be perfectly at ease, open, containing all things, neither moving toward or away from, like the space of sky.
Sounds come and go. The breath moves like a breeze in space. The body floats not solid at all, just pressure and temperature areas of experience floating in space. Become aware of the thoughts and images that arise and pass. Words come and go, pictures appear like the sunset or the sunrise and pass away. The space, the sky of mind contains them all. They come from nowhere and they vanish back into silence. Thoughts arise and pass, sounds come and go. No inside and no outside. In this open space, be aware also of moods and feelings, like beautiful colors in the water, like changes in the weather, joy and sorrows, thoughts and images arise and pass away, like the breath and sounds. arising and leaving no trace. Rest in the great spaciousness. In its true state, mind is found to be quite intelligible, although invisible. In its true state, mind is clear and vacuous like the sky, without boundaries or limits, naked, immaculate, not made of anything, <coughs> being of the voidness, allowing for all things, yet in no way limited by them. <coughs> to know if this is so or not, rest at ease 
listen and look within your own mind. The next time you hear the bells, when they fade away, allow your eyes to open and notice the appearance of form and color around you in the same great open and clear space of mind. No inside or outside, just this which arises and the great space that holds it all. Thoughts come and go, the breath moves like a breeze, rising like clouds and bubbles. The mind is silent and open. Kabir says it this way, are you looking for me? I'm in the next seat, my shoulder is against yours. It is not far away what we seek, the peace, openness, nearer than near. Did you have a sense of that, of how the boundaries can open, some of you? All right, then there is a quiz, <laughs> a little question. And it's really a quiz that we might well have given a couple of weeks ago with the story of Nachiketa, visiting Lord of Death Yama. And that quiz is this. What about compassion? Here's this great sense of space and openness, all things coming and going. How do you act in the world then? What about kindness? Or if you were here for that story, how does Nachiketa return from the land of death, having discovered that which is timeless, immortal, the undying? Then what brings you back? What do you do? Anyone have an answer? Please. No grades, I promise. From that sense of space, What's the source of action or compassion? Yes? You just be and allow it to arise and have its play. So you just be, she says, and allow it to arise and have its play, and then will it just come by itself? Mm-hmm. She thinks it will just come by itself. Okay, please. The action is, is called for it. The action is called for, for by circumstance, by situation, and it's simply by being in tune to circumstance that that, that response is called, is evoked, is called out of us. So the action will be called out of us by circumstance. Just being in the circumstance, the action will be called forth. By becoming a part of the circumstance. By becoming a part of the circumstance. separate from anything. Because you know then that you're not separate from anything. Three answers, connected answers. Anything else? Julian of Norwich, wonderful saint and poet, wrote some lines which T.S. Eliot quotes or uses in his 
last great epic poem, the Four Quartets. The vision of a mystic, really, the heart of a very deep realization. She writes, all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. All shall be well. An amazing thing to say, even in death, even in suffering, she sees the exquisite and absolute perfection of the world. The perfection of all things in harmony, even in the face of war and famine and the horrors that we see around Bosnia or the Holocaust or other grave, grave injustices, the famines in Africa. What does that mean, perfection? The third Zen patriarch writes about it in this quite astonishing line, for me the most amazing line in all of Zen literature, where he says, to be enlightened is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. To not be anxious about non-perfection is to be enlightened, because it's not perfect by your idea. It is perfect in the way that it is. I read you a story. In a little Indian village lived a weaver who was very pious. All day long he would say the name of God and people trusted him. When he wove a certain amount of cloth, he'd take it to the marketplace. If anyone asked the price, he would say, by the will of Ram, this was his name of God, the price is 35 cents, the labor of the yarn. The labor is 10 cents, the profit by the will of Ram is 4 cents. So the price of this piece by the will of God is 49 cents. And everyone had such faith in the man, they didn't bargain, they just paid what he asked. Now the weaver was in habit of going to the village temple at night to chant praises of God and sing the glories of his name. Late one night, chanting, a band of robbers burst in. They needed someone to carry their stolen goods, so they said, come with us. The weaver meekly accompanied them with the goods on his head, as they do in India. Soon the police gave chase and the robbers ran. The weaver ran with them, but since he was an old man, the police soon caught him. Finding the stolen goods, they arrested him, threw him in jail. The following morning, he was sent before the judge and accused of burglary. When the judge asked what he had to say for himself, this is what he said. Your Honor, by the will of Ram, I finished my meal last night, and by the will of Ram, I went to the temple and there to chant his praises. That is when suddenly, by the will of Ram, a band of robbers burst in, and by Rama's will invited me to carry their goods away for them. <laughs> they put such a load on my head that when, by the will of Ram, the police gave chase, I was easily caught. Then, by the will of Ram, I was arrested and thrown in jail. And here I am, standing before you this morning, by the will of Ram. The judge said to the policeman, Let the man go, he is evidently out of his mind. <laughs> Back home, when asked what had happened, the pious weaver said, By the will of Ram, I was arrested and tried in court, and by the will of Ram, I have been acquitted. <laughs> so there's this space of perfection, like the astronauts who look down on the earth and see this form of life that we're in, and all the forms of life, birth and death and joy and sorrow, and you know, every... How often is it that they say every hundred million years or so some huge comet strikes the earth and wipes out all the dinosaurs and might wipe out all the mammals next time or something? We think we're important in some way, the ant people that are here for just a little while. But from some perspective, there's a much greater dance going on that we are a part of in some deep, profound and timeless way. And it's not just this limited body. So how does this connect with compassion? There were some very good answers, weren't there? In Sanskrit, there is a great mantra that Tibetans particularly use it, but other Buddhists, Om Mani Padmi Hung, the jewel is in the lotus. And one meaning is the jewel is the mind and the lotus is the heart. And the Buddha taught, he began to teach because he looked out resting in this perfect peace. And he saw beings everywhere seeking happiness, but often doing the very thing that would bring them to suffering. Haven't you noticed? And so there was this movement in his heart to say, no, no, it's much simpler than that. 
what you seek. Last week we talked about racism. The men's retreat that finished yesterday, we talked about grief and sorrow. We did a grieving ritual and went and wept and went into the trees to pray for some grace to tell each of us how to live in the world. And the Buddha, he saw this folly of beings caused by illusion, caused by fear, by greed, by prejudice, by hatred, and all of this comes out of separation. My body, my territory, my country, this sense of separation that we call the body of fear, the fear of loss, the fear of being mistreated, the fear of those who are different. And when we come to touch spaciousness, within that, we discover in that letting go that there is a natural compassion, the great heart of a Buddha. For in the perfection of things, in this great perfection, there also arises perfect compassion. And you can sense it. It's said the image of the Buddha is of two wings, like a bird flying free in the sky, one of clarity, of spaciousness, and the other of the heart of compassion, space and form. Because when we are free of fear, which is really what space is about, just to breathe and take some space, not be so afraid, not to be so contracted. When we're free of fear, there comes a natural response, as someone said. Our connectedness is there right out of the center of our heart. Thich Nhat Hanh talked about it. He said, in the boats, the boat people that left Vietnam, those boats that had one person on them that was really unafraid, when they met the great storms or the pirates, they generally made it through. But if there wasn't one person that was in that center, in that spaciousness, often everyone became crazed and frightened and they didn't make it. Or remember that wonderful picture from Tiananmen Square of that one man with his shopping bags coming back from market. Remember him? And there's that long row of tanks coming down the road and he's standing there in front of the tanks in the tank stop. And it's beautiful because it's like he's got his, his goods from the market there. It's not like he's some extraordinary sadhu or yogi or something. He's just coming from the market and there he is standing in front of the tanks. And he says, you cannot do this from that place of being unafraid. You know, there was a symphony orchestra in Sarajevo. And Sarajevo was a center of beautiful culture. 400,000, 500,000 people. And one of the old men in the city, much of the symphony orchestra fled to other parts of Europe, stayed, was a cellist. Some of you may have seen this on TV. And in spite of the shellings and the bombings, he would go out every day at a certain time of the day and go to a square and <coughs> open up his case and sit down and play music on his cello for the residents of Sarajevo. The image of the Buddha that's on the wall there is the Buddha with a thousand heads and a thousand arms of compassion. And all around him is this flames because life has sorrow and loss and pain as much as it has beauty and love and creativity. They can't be separated. How can you separate birth and death? They're on the same ticket. <laughs> You get the ride, and they, you know how they tear it in half in the movie, this half's birth and that half's death. So the Buddha sits in the middle of joy and sorrow and hot and cold and day and night and pleasure and pain and sits in the midst of that fire and out of the heart comes a thousand arms to touch the sorrows of others, a heart that is at peace and timeless. And from that place, this knowing that we are all connected, seeing beings who want to be happy, doing the things that cause suffering, and saying, no, there's another way. The Buddha called it wisdom, to act or move like a bee, touching the essence of the flower without harm to it through life. Part of the perfection is the quivering of the heart, the tears of love or compassion when we care for another being as ourselves, because we are that being. We are uni unified 
in that consciousness. I read you a very short poem from Zen Master Isa. Listen to it carefully. Dew evaporates and all our world is dew. This is the first line. That was that space, you could feel it. Dew evaporates, thoughts, sounds, our whole life. Dew evaporates and all our world is dew. So dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. Now what's important to know about this poem is that it is the poem that he wrote on the death of his child. Listen again. Dew evaporates and all our world is dew. So dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. What we seek in the end, what we long for, is a peace that is not made or created, that's not far away, that never dies. It is that spaciousness. Anything, the difficulties in your life, to find a place of space, of graciousness, of enjoyment, of what is the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And so again, Zen Master Ryokan, he sits in his little hut. And he says, listening to the evening rain, the great way I braid a spring flower into a ball, the future, if a visitor brings these questions, I have only the tranquility of the hermitage to offer. Once again, the children and I fight a battle using the spring grasses, now advancing, retreating, each time with more refinement. Twilight, it's time for the children to return home. The bright round moon helps me endure the loneliness. He's beautiful because he doesn't say that there isn't everything. There's joy and there's loneliness and there's peace and there's all of life. My life may appear melancholy, but traveling through this world, I entrust myself to heaven. In my sack, three quarts of rice, by the hearth, a bundle of firewood. If someone asks, what is the mark of enlightenment or illusion? I cannot say. Praise and blame, wealth and honor are nothing but dust. As the evening rain falls, I sit in my hermitage and stretch out both feet in an answer. So let your eyes close for a moment, if you would. Sit. Let yourself be spacious, open, at peace. The breath breathes itself. The feelings and thoughts arise like waves of the ocean. And allow yourself to think of a difficult situation in your life now. Conflict, struggle, something that you have sorrow or problem with. Personally, community, greater in any way in your life. And as you think of it, ask yourself how it would be to be more spacious. You might respond in any way necessary, but feel what it would like, be like to have more space in your body, in your breath, in your mind, in your heart.
So tonight, these are some of the teachings of space and equanimity. Perhaps a bit of a balance to the suffering we spoke of last week, the sorrows, racism, the pains that we experience so much in modern times. If the meditation on sound was useful to you, um, you can work with that. It's a beautiful meditation to do. If it wasn't, you can just go back to your breath and body. Different meditations fit for various temperaments. So simply be respectful of what works for yourself. So let's sit and do a little chant to end. And the chant is one we do often in the evenings here. It's simply the chant of opening or letting go. It's the sound, ah. And we'll sing that for a little bit and then rest in the space that remains from it. and all our world is due, so dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. May you rest in peace, spaciousness this week, and may the movement of your heart that connects you with all things give you the gift of words and actions to touch and heal the world around you. Thank you. Thank you.